0: I'm here today with Robert P. Jones. Robert is the author of a new book called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. So here's the book, and I'm going to read the introduction of uh, Robert here uh, out of the book because it's a very good one. Uh, Robert P. Jones is the CEO and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute, also known as PRRI, and a leading scholar and commentary on religion and politics. Robert writes a column on politics, culture, and religion for The Atlantic Online, and is frequently featured in major national media such as CNN, MSNBC, NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many others. He holds a Ph.D. in religion from Emory University and an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the author of another book that was called The End of White Christian America, which won the 2019 Graumeier Award in religion. So, Robert, it's really a pleasure to uh, have you join us here today. I'm glad to be here. Maybe you can start off by telling us about your new book. Um, it's relatively recently released and uh, doing well, so tell us more about uh, how that came about. Sure, um, well it's been out about a month now um, uh, from Simon and & Schuster.
1: And uh, you know, it, the, it, it's a book uh, that kind of goes straight at I think a problem that has plagued us for most of the nation's life, that is um, the existence of white supremacy um, in the country. And in particular, how that has been connected with and, um, and has really been fostered, uh, its survival has been fostered by, um, you know, uh, white Christianity um, in the country. Uh, I should say that this book um, is a personal book. Um, it, it is probably a quarter memoir, um, you know, and then the rest of it is, is history and um, social science analysis. So, you know, my day job, uh, I spend, uh, you know, week in, week out looking at public opinion data um, at PRRI and in particular, looking at uh, how uh, religiously identified Americans, uh, what, what their opinions are on a whole range of issues. Um, and really, the book uh, began, you know, both from kind of the personal and the professional side. On the personal side, I think, um, you know, I started writing the book in 2017 in earnest, uh, really after the char- events in Charlottesville, where we had white supremacists, you know, defending a, a statue of Robert E. Lee and chanting, blood and these neo-nazi slogans blood and soil and jews will not replace us uh and um you know found i mean that among a, a number of other events uh, you know very disturbing and, and really uh started writing in earnest there but then also i had i just uh began to see more and more of these patterns in the in the public opinion data where white Christians um, as a whole, and not just white evangelicals uh, on the more conservative side of of Christianity, but white mainline Protestants and white Catholics as well, uh, just seem to be either having difficulty or outright denied uh, the existence of systemic uh, racism um, in in the country uh, across a whole range of questions. And so given this uh, kind of current moment of reckoning, I think we're in on issues of racial justice, it seemed like the right time to kind of dig in uh, hard and um, given that I, I grew up uh, as a Southern Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi, um, it, it also seemed I shouldn't put myself and my, my own
0: journey into the story. Well, it's really an excellent book. Um, it's very practical. Um, I, I just love, you know, some of the examples that you've given in there of, uh, you know, churches working together, the, the one in Macon, Georgia, where it's uh, used to be a single church that split, I guess was a decades or centuries ago and now is collaborating. And you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, one of the things,
1: you know, so uh, the history is not just ancient history. I mean, some of it is kind of writing down what's happening right now. Um, And so this, these two churches, it's interesting. It's in Macon, Georgia, which is the hometown of my parents. Um, And, and actually my family goes back six generations in Bibb and Twiggs County, right around Macon, Macon, Georgia. So we have very, very deep, you know, roots in that space. So, you know, I was, uh, aware of these two uh, churches, and, and they're, they're both called First Baptist Church, which seems a little bit odd, right? Uh, that in a town that's not so large, you'd have two First Baptist Churches. Uh, one is predominantly white, one is predominantly ba- black, uh, but it is not like some marketing competition that, you know, led them there. They actually used to be the same church. Um, the church was founded actually in 1825, uh, and in, in, in its original incarnation, uh, it was white slave owners bringing enslaved people to church with them. Like that was, that's who the membership of, of the church was. It was black and white, uh, mixed congregation. Um, and in that uh, setting, it was whites who sat in the front, enslaved Africans sat in the back uh, of the service. And you know, that existed until, for um, the first couple of decades of the church's life. Um, it then split um, as things were heating up uh, ahead of the Civil War. It split in the 1840s. Um, and the, uh, the white church basically built uh, an, another building just for, uh, who were then still uh, their in slave property. Um, and and uh, it was under white supervision. It wasn't until after the Civil War that the African-American church got its own independence. But then these two churches sat there for 150 years, basically in their own bubbles and not even acknowledging each other's. Uh, each other's presence, and they're really close together. I mean, you could—they're—they're uh, they're ba- basically like down the hill and around a corner from each other, but close enough that you—they have a park that's kind of adjacent to the back of the churches. You could literally stand in the parking lot of one and throw a golf ball to the other one. I mean, that's how close uh, you can see one steeple from the other. Um, and, and and it wasn't until uh, seven years ago that they uh, actually the two pastors. Finally, got together and just said, like, what are we doing? Like, we we've been we have this shared history, we're right here together, and yet we have no connection, no community uh, between us. And they they set out to to change it. Um, and you know, it, it's been a really interesting um, journey to kind of watch and to hear, you know, these two churches. And they began really simply. I mean, it, it, you know, they're not out to merge the churches, but they are out to build community between the two churches. They started with things like an Easter egg roll and that shared. Uh, green space behind both of the churches. There's a park there, Uh, potluck dinners, um, you know, these kinds of things to really just create a space where people could be in relationship uh, with one another. Uh, But one early test, um, you know, came uh, uh, when Trayvon Martin was killed in in Florida. And I'll just tell this quick story that um, they had planned a youth trip uh, to to Disney world and the, and, and it was going to be a joint trip. They were going to open it up to the youth in both churches and they noticed, uh, the, uh, the, the white church noticed that there were no African-American kids signed up on the trip, um, which is very odd, given that they had had this community. Uh, and it turned out that, um, you know, while the white parents didn't give it a second thought to sign up to go to Florida, um, all the black parents uh, basically said to them, look, you know, our kids look like Trayvon. And there's no way we're sending our kids down to Florida uh, right now. It scares us to death, given what happened. Uh, to him and they they ended up having to have a whole conversation about it um and once i think uh the black parents were convinced that the white parents kind of got it like understood these concerns Uh, and they actually had one of the chaperones on the trip who was actually the da uh, in bibb county who said look i get what you're talking about i see this all the time like i can promise you i will have their i will have their back um on the trip and uh that opened it up, and and they signed up and went on the trip. But um, particularly, I think, for the white church, this the journey that it's been on in terms of rethinking their own identity um, and under, and having a different understanding of their own identity and their own own church's history, these kind of conversations really cracked open um, a whole process, uh, really, of them reevaluating uh, their relationship to this church and then really um, their their own history and having to reckon with yeah. Uh, this history of slave owning, uh, being on the wrong side of uh, segregation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it's actually been quite a, um, really a a beautiful journey. Um, One that's been, you know, stops and starts the way these things are, but I think real um, and and organic way where they've been willing to kind of stay in these very difficult conversations um, and work toward, uh, you know, a, a relationship that is, you know, undergirded with a sense of justice and is kind of aiming ultimately, you know, toward kind of more reconciliation.
0: Well, like I said, it's really a great example. It's a wonderful story. And, you know, I I think it can be looked at as a role model for many of us, for many of churches that don't necessarily have that intimate history of the two, you know, having once been one. But, you know, how do we reach across, right, you know, these divides? I mean, everyone has always said that, you know, Sunday morning is most segregated, time in our country and um you know if churches are looking for something to do right to help combat systemic uh, racism then you know getting to know people (laughs) you know build relationships with people that don't look like you is absolutely one of the best ways to start
1: yeah and i I think particularly for you know uh, those of us on the white christian side of, of things um the the first chapter in the book I titled seeing S E E I N G and uh, did that for a reason that I, I think I know in my own life, my own journey, um, just seeing the realities of systemic racism is, a is like one of the biggest initial hurdles, I think, um, because it, one of the things that white supremacy has done, I think, and, and in particular the way it's functioned inside of white Christian churches is to render itself invisible, right. To, particularly to whites. And so kind of just, one of the things that I think it did, just being in those conversations, just on the example of Trayvon Martin, for example, you know, the, the, the white pastor, uh, Scott Dickinson, said to me, he said, look, you know, I'd like to think that had we not been, been on this journey already with, our, with this other African-American church, I would like to think I would have preached a, a sermon related to Trayvon Martin and systemic racism, but I'm not sure I would would have. You know, have we not already been in this conversation? So I think it opens up a kind of moral vision um, and a, a different kind of space. Um, that, uh, just being in those conversations, even if they're at the initial stages, it kind of um, awakens a kind of broader consciousness, um, I, I think, among among white Christians than we will naturally have with ourselves, particularly um, in having inherited a theology that I think the only way to really say it is is kind of morally blind to systemic racism. Uh, Uh, racism and issues like that.
0: Well I think you know that's such an important point what you call seeing Um, you know maybe awareness whatever you know terms that you want to use that uh, gradually long overdue it seems like people are white people are becoming more aware Um, and but at the same time because of your statistical work you've got all this data as you said that shows that Virtually all segments of Christianity tend to skew more racist um, than the average population, and so maybe you could share share a little bit about that data. And yeah,
1: yeah, I, I think without the contemporary public opinion data patterns, I, yeah, I'm not sure I would have taken the time or the energy to write the book. But you know what that shows us is that this history. Um, is still very much with us today and that it lives inside of white Christianity. I think that's the the more disturbing, I think, findings that the contemporary data, you know, show. So for example, basically what I did is I uh, looked at um, a whole range of questions. So not just one or two, but I had um, 15 different questions that cover a lot of ground. They cover things like attitudes around Confederate monuments and flags or uh, attitudes around the police killing of African-Americans by police or, our criminal justice system and inequities there, uh, economic mobility, uh, and the role that systemic racism has played there, uh, and a whole other, you know, range of questions. I had 15 different questions like that, combined them into one uh, big kind of composite index so that I could get a, a single measure uh, to, to use, and, and basically scaled it from one to 10. And to give you a sense of this, um, uh, so with 10 being the kind of holding the, the, the most racist attitudes, one being holding the least uh, racist attitudes. And when I looked at white Christian groups, they all scored skewed toward the high end of that scale. So just to make it really specific, white evangelicals um, scored eight out of 10 um, on this, uh, what I call the racism index. And um, that may not be that surprising if you think, you know, uh, this is a group that's heavily in the South, it has a long history of being pro-slavery, pro-segregation. But I think what what the other uh, the other groups, the white mainline Protestant groups, which is ten, you know, people are think of as the more liberal end of the white Protestant world, um, scored seven out of ten um, on this racism index. And then white Catholics, who had their own very complex um, you know history in the U.S., where they themselves were the victims of discrimination and a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, you know, even all the way up through the 20th century, um, even that group scored basically seven out of ten um, on this on this racism index. Um, and, you know, and then I, I also looked at, uh, so one, one question when you see that kind of data is like, okay, well, maybe there's some intervening variable that explains this. It's not, maybe it's not really about Christianity, but I took a lot of time to kind of test for those um, alternative explanations. So, for example, maybe it's about uh, the fact that they're more, that white Christians are more likely to identify as Republican, uh, or that uh, maybe it's about education level or region of the country that they live in, or urban versus rural Uh, it's about gender, all kinds of things. So I tested basically putting controls for all of those possible, um, you know, alternative explanations. And even with those uh, controls in place, this independent relationship between holding more racist uh, views and identifying as white Christian uh, stood up. Uh, And then the one other, you know, thing I, tire I kicked here is is, uh, that uh, I think people often wonder, well, maybe it's just, these are just Christians in name only, right? So maybe they just self-report that they're Christian, but they don't really have a connection to a church or a congregation, haven't really been discipled in the faith, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like a really valid you know, question. So maybe it's just people giving lip service to being Christian. Uh, but even when I brought in things like church attendance, which would um, you know, be a measure of how closely connected someone is uh, to a congregation, that uh, at, at best uh, church attendance has no effect uh, on levels of racism among, among white Christians. And if you look among uh, uh, white evangelicals, it actually has the opposite effect. That is, uh, among those who attend more often, the connection between holding racist racist attitudes and their identity as white evangelicals is actually stronger uh, than it is among those who attend least. So in in that case, attending church actually makes it worse uh, 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 in terms of their um, attitudes on race and specifically systemic Racism. So it's really that clear picture. Survey after survey, question after question, this pattern shows up. um, And and, and particularly if you're comparing uh, white Christians to whites who are not Christian, that was the one thing I did in in the book. Uh, Back to that scale, like white Christians score between seven and eight on that racism scale. Whites who are not Christian score around four um, out of 10 um, on that scale, uh, much closer to where African Americans are. African Americans score around two um on this on this scale so um you see this i think that's the sort of start gap is that you know you basically take your average white person you add christianity and they get more racist is one quick way to kind of boil it down
0: that is so i mean disturbing as you said and uh so i guess you know the next question is that begs what do we do about it yeah and i know we talked about the one church example but i mean what what other examples do you have or, or suggestions
1: yeah well, it's tough. I mean, I, th- I think staring the scale of the problem in the face is, is important, you know, because I think uh, both for me, I mean, even I look at these patterns all the time. And, and when I saw just how consistent it was, you know, when I was doing the, the research, um, even for me, it was a bit shocking. Right. And, and I think the initial reaction uh, from uh, even in my head and for many others when they first see this data um, is to say, well, how can this be? Right. Because this is definitely not the self-image. Uh, that white Christians have about themselves, right? We, we tend to see ourselves as good people who do good things. I mean, that's the kind of self-image of, of, of Christianity. Um, and, but here's the thing. I think if we really take the, the history seriously um, and, and look, and, and, and it's really basically this point um, that I should probably unpack. Um, you know, I, so I'm using the word white supremacy. I think also uh, people have a very narrow view of what that means so that uh, they sort of reject that it has anything to do with them very quickly. Uh, they think of people burning crosses, you know, the KKK burning crosses in people's lawns. But I actually mean something much broader than that by the word white supremacy. And if we unpack it, um, it really is the more plain meaning of the word, even if we flip the words around to talk about the suprem- uh, kind of uh, a dedication to a worldview uh, where whites are superior uh, to other races. I mean, and, and there's really no way to read uh, most of American history and even uh, Christian history, white Christian history without seeing that one of the things under the hood all the way through um, was this kind of a priori or prior commitment to uh, a worldview where whites were divinely ordained as the superior race. And and everyone else was seen to be an inferior uh, race. And that basically justified, you know, um, a kind of society set up to privilege and protect. Uh, the lives of whites, um, even at the expense of others, because there was this kind of hierarchical understanding of the races. Um, and, and, and white Christianity was the thing that justified uh, that, um, was one of the strongest ways that, that got justified. When you take that history seriously and you think, okay, look, uh, it is formidable what we're facing here, because uh, it means that all, all of Christian theology that got formed in, in America um, was shaped around that prior commitment, right, and that prior idea. Um, so from the hymns that we sing, the theology that, that got developed, uh, you know, the, the way that we conduct, co- conduct church in our liturgy um, was all shaped around that, uh, had to fit within that worldview. Um, so I, I think the work really is to take very seriously, um, you know, something I think every generation is tasked with, and that is to say, okay, look, in what we have received um, from our Christian faith, um, what is it? Uh, that is authentic? What is it um, that uh, needs reconstructing um, and, and rethinking? And what is it that needs to be excised and jettisoned before we pass this on to our next generation? I th- and I think there's an opportunity here and now in this moment of racial reckoning we're at where I think a kind of moral vision is possible uh, for white Christians uh, because it is, I think, right in our face in a way. Uh, if we don't turn away I think there is an opportunity here um, to finally excise uh, some of these things that previous generations have either looked away from, uh, blinked, or uh, just been willing to kind of let, let, let go and not take seriously how deeply deforming they have been uh, to Christianity. So I, I, so I really do think the work is, uh, and, and to make it practical, um, I, I think the work is really trying to tell an honest, as honest a story as we can. Uh, for any churches that have been around for very long, they, they sometimes write their own church histories, right? And, and they publish them in a little book, and all the members get them. Those, those are almost always a, a flowery, idealized version, you know, of, of the church's history that only talks about the best of things. Um, but I think even if, if every church, in, if every white church in America only answered this question, for example, I think we would begin to get somewhere, just this basic question, why are we geographically located where we are?
0: <laughs> horse and buggy was part of it right
1: <laughs> well you know well I, what i what i have in mind is is that you know um, for older churches uh many of them uh, uh you know began in the city and ended up in the suburbs right and why is that well it was part of white flight for the most part they were following white flight out of the cities um and and, and it was a way of opposing um integration um, right so kind of following flights for newer churches. Why why did they plant themselves in an all white suburb? Um, you know, um, again, it, it it why why not? Why didn't they go downtown? Um, you know, when they when they started ten years ago, um, what what was in that? And I think an honest answer to that question, for example, would would open up a whole range of conversations about race, about racial justice, um, and uh, about how you know we really understand. Uh, church and 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 what it
0: is to be a church church today. So, um, you know, we're just about as polarized as I've ever seen it. You know, in our, our country right now. Yeah. What ways have you found to be most effective to be able to you know speak to people effectively that maybe have different views than you.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's really difficult. Um, yeah. I I can't. I'll get to that question, but I can't uh, quite get there without just noting that one of the ways we're polarized certainly is around partisanship, right? Republican versus Democrat or Democrat versus Republican. Uh, But underlying that this, this story of racism and Christianity is absolutely a part of that story. Um, So for example, today, um, uh, Republicans are um, about two thirds white and Christian. Democrats are only about one third white and Christian. So how do we get there? We mostly get there, um, uh, the, the, the dynamics that produce the two political parties we have today. And, and I do think that's part of the problem is that it's not just partisanship, but partisanship has been welded onto religious identity and racial identity, right? And so that makes it really hard then because we're now reacting out of these very visceral, basic, you know, identities. It's, it's very, very challenging why people get defensive so quickly because you're not just talking about my party. You're talking about my race and my religion. Um, you know, in, in these conversations, but it's worth noting, and I, I think, a, again, a kind of moment of real reckoning here is that the, the way we get the two political parties we have today, the, the propulsion uh, that provides the fuel uh, is really the, the Civil Rights Acts of the mid-1960s. I mean, prior to that, uh, most white Christians were Democrats, um, and what we see really is a white flight at, at, between 1965 and Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Where white Christians, particularly in the South and the Midwest, completely uh, flipped their partisan ship, and and that trajectory has given us the two political parties we have uh, today, with white Christians so over overrepresented in the Republican Party and underrepresented in the in the Democratic Party, um, and 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 then and then this huge gap between Black Christian and white Christian attitudes, we've already been talking about, right? So that's kind of the roots of our our polarization. Um, I have to think that that um, My own take is that I think we're not going to get anywhere. I I read a lot of James Baldwin uh, kind of working on this book. Um, And, you know, one of the things he, I think, was kind of clear about and that that I'm convinced uh, about is that I don't think we're going to get much of anywhere important by having uh, nice, polite conversations. Um, I think we're going to have to have some difficult conversations. Um, You know, and like one of the things he said is, look, we have to be able to tell the truth. Um, and, uh, much of that truth is going to be bitter. Uh, and we have to find a way to sit with it. Um, I'm I, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I, think that the, the main thing going back to this example of, you know, the churches in Macon, I think what makes a difference are relationships. Um, and the, the problem is that we are very socially segregated in this country. And we did a survey a few years ago, looking at people's core friendship networks. Um, and, uh, for example, uh, the average white person in America, their core friendship network is 93% white, right? And, and fully three quarters of white said they had absolutely no one, no person of color at all um, in their social network. So when we're living in those kinds of segregated so three bubbles... Quarters,
0: three quarters is the number you said?
1: Three. Yeah, three quarters said they had absolutely no wow. person of color in their core social network. Uh, and we define that as someone that, um, not just an acquaintance, So we, we, but we define that as someone that you had had an important conversation about your life uh, in the last 12 months, right? So somebody you'd really like when you have a problem, when you need some advice, somebody you, you know, who's really there to have a real conversation, not just somebody you run into at work. Uh, So we define it that way, kind of close friends, uh, essentially. Um, Yeah, that we have like, and so what it means is that we have, you know, when we're holding, I think I speak from the kind of white side of things, when we're holding a view that may be um, ill-informed or maybe even driven. by a a kind of racist, unacknowledged racist attitude, we have very few people to kind of help us break out of that uh, thing. So I I think the challenges are immense, but I I think the working on these relationships, because I think if you have a close enough relationship um, where, you know, and this happened a lot even in that uh, churches in Macon, where, uh, you know, uh, it was only because they had been in relationship that they realized, for example, that we have to talk about Trayvon Martin this Sunday. Um, in a way that we could probably forget about if we weren't in relationship you know, with this other church. So I think there's an accountability that comes from, rel- from relationships. So I think building up some institutions, and we don't have that many institutional spaces um, to help us do this. So I think that really has to be the project of trying to kind of create institutional space, and churches can certainly be a, a big part of this, where people um, you know, can find a safe space to really start building these relationships so that when these difficult conversations come, they're not really happening in a vacuum and we're not shouting across the divides at, at strangers.
0: So what you're saying is very consistent with two of the other interviews that I've just recently done. Um, you know, one was with uh, Reverend um, Mark Feldmeyer from uh, a church in Colorado who wrote another great book called the house divided, where he talks about um, you know, the, the, the relationship aspect of things and kind of, you know, building a, a level of uh, trust and respect before you, tackle the tough issues. And another interview was with uh, Reverend Alexia Salvatierra, who's uh, yeah. yep. an author and activist in California. Um, and she was basically, you know, saying the same thing that, you know, her her recommendation is that churches try to do mission projects together, you know, um, basically coupling a, you know, predominantly white church with a predominantly minority church mm-hmm. and, and do, I mean, she says mission projects, literally, I mean, you know, which obviously can take a lot of different forms, but the point is more something that can be common ground to have, you know, relationships together where you work together and get to know each other Mm -hmm. and build that trust, you know, which, which then, you know, hopefully can foster some of those tougher discussions that you, you know, um, that you and James Baldwin have pointed out. But boy, isn't that a long road. You know what I mean to to, yeah. to make that happen across the country, right? You know, uh, in, a, in a mass kind of way. Um, I'm not. I don't know that there's any other answer. I wish there was, but boy, that's now. You know, the other example I'll give. I'll give is, you know, another thing I do is I, I produce, publishing, and color conferences. And honestly, the 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 impetus behind that was to foster those relationships from people in the Christian publishing industry that are prominently white with writers of color. Just get to know each other, right, and get to build relationships. Because so much in business, as you all know, is who you know. You know, and who knows you. And so just building those very, you know, fundamental, elemental relationships is just so critical. Um, So, you know, besides... I think it's right.
1: Just one quick comment, because I think one of the... Um, kind of use a theological word. Um, You know, one of the, I think, biggest sins of white Christians in this moment we're in is to be dismissive of the pain and anger of African-Americans in the country right now. Um, And that's easy to do if you don't know any of them, right? (coughs) Uh, It's much harder to do um, if it's somebody you love and care about and care about their kids and care about their safety um, it is a much harder thing to be just absolutely dismissive of. Um, you know, so I, I mean, one of the things I've been sort of saying is like, look, even if, even if it's not somebody you know, um, I, I really am hoping that at least one thing that can happen out of this moment is particularly white Christians can find um, a lot more humility um, in this moment and, and at least kind of operate on the principle uh, that says, okay, look, we may not get it, we may not see it, uh uh because clearly m- most white christians don't uh see it you know like on this question the killing of african-american men by police we actually asked specifically about that um and basically seven in ten white christians uh say they're just isolated incidents and aren't connected at all uh right uh, whereas the vast vast majority of african-american christians say no actually this is part of a pattern of how police treat treat us um, and so there's this vast divide in perception. Um, And, you know, but I think if if white Christians, even as they're building those relationships um, of trust, could at least operate out of this out of a principle that says, "Okay, look, I may not see it. I may not get it. But if I see, you know, uh, the vast majority of my African-American brothers and sisters in pain uh, and angry about something, I'm going to commit myself to taking that seriously, even if I don't quite understand it.
0: So we have an election coming up. Uh, what suggestions do you have after the election for politicians to, you know, put in place, you know, to help, help bridge this gap?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And I I think it's going to be even more difficult because, you know, after the two uh, conventions um, it's pretty clear that this great divide around racial justice that we've been talking about is going to be front and center um, in the campaign. So, the distrust I think between uh, white and black Americans and particularly between white Christian uh, uh, Americans and African-Americans is going to get bigger um, over the next few months uh, because it's going to be weaponized by uh, our political system. Uh, So it means that I I think um, after the election, like whoever wins, uh, there's going to be um, a great need for, not not just kind of racial justice, but but healing um, in the country from a lot of distrust. And so I, I think if we're thinking about um, what to do, I, I think it is trying to put in put in place. And again, I, I think people need institutional help here, right? Because um, it's really hard just as an individual to say, okay, I'm just going to go seek out some individual people, and I'm, hi, I'm white, you're black, uh, can we talk? You know, I mean, it's, it's a very awkward Doesn't thing work. to do, right? Right, But if, but if there are um, some institutional spaces, um, these can be reading groups, they can be church groups, they can be mission trips. I mean, I think we're going to have to get creative and build this because we don't really have it. Um, but I think uh, the project for 2021, um, you know, if we care about our democracy and our communities, is going to be healing the divides at this election uh, is it, sort of exploiting. They they've been there. They're not. It's not creating the, the, the divides, but it is exploiting them uh, in, in ways that are going to make uh, so, you know the 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 wounds really raw, and the need to kind of bring about some kind of healing uh, you know after the election. But but I do think this. I do think that um, uh, that healing is not going to come in a cheap and easy way. It's going to. Re- it is going to require a reckoning. Um, and, and, a, and a more honest conversation than most white Christians have been willing to have.
0: Well, this is something for us to come back to in a couple months, Robert. Um, let's, let's get back together and uh, see what happened. And, yeah. and we'll discuss, you know, what we've seen maybe in terms of some healing initiatives that are on their way or some institutional things that could be done. So I'll look forward to um, reconvening our conversation then. Great. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thanks very much for joining us. This has really been a fantastic um, conversation. And let, let me, again, you know, suggest that everyone get a copy of Robert's book because uh, it really does build awareness and uh, shows, you know, specific data. And uh, for, for those of us who like <laughs> science and like math and like data, um, it's, a really good, uh, it's a really good read. So thanks again, Robert, for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.